I like to think of myself as a, um, I guess, a maladaptive perfectionist in remission. I don't think perfectionism is a bad thing. I just think that when you buy into the idea that there can be a thing called perfect, that's when you're in trouble. This is House Lights Up, honest conversations with professional performing arts workers about the challenges of forging a career in the arts and strategies for overcoming them. In this episode, we'll be looking at the insidious condition of perfectionism, how it can cripple a performing artist and ways in which it can be overcome. How many times have you heard someone say, I'm a perfectionist? It's usually declared with pride, as a measure of how much that person cares about their work and the level of quality to which they hold themselves. But say you hold the view, as many people do, that perfection is impossible. Perfection doesn't exist. Does that mean the pursuit of perfection is pointless? Or worse, that it's dangerous? Here's Councillor Gabrielle Edwards' take on the subject. There's no such thing as perfect. So perfectionism, it's just a losing battle. It's a handicap. Perfectionism drives anxiety. The most worrying, most prevalent you know, condition and challenge that performing artists face. Perfectionism drives it. There's no such thing as perfection. So you're pursuing something that doesn't exist if you get caught up in that. The, the most successful people in any given field are less likely to be perfectionists because the anxiety about making mistakes gets in your way. The voice you heard off the top of the episode was that of operatic soprano, registered psychologist and maladaptive perfectionist in remission, Greta Bradman. Here's a bit more about her view on perfectionism. It's like certainty. You know, um, certainty is a big part of anxiety disorders, for instance, um, and it's sort of a discomfort with uncertainty. And I think, you know, perfectionism and anxiety can go hand in hand, but particularly the sort of you know maladaptive perfectionism where you feel like everything has to be just right and you know what it means for things to be just right um, and if they don't live up to that then you know that's kind of it's all over um, that's not helpful one of the things that really helped me was Carol Dweck she's a Stanford professor um, she pioneered research and then the um, the idea of growth versus fixed mindset so the idea that when you're in a fixed mindset, you're really thinking about ability, performance to date, and what that reflects about sort of your underlying proficiency and capabilities. Whereas a growth mindset, you know, you're really looking at everything as an opportunity for learning and for improvement, and you're looking at effort. And she and her team of, um, of researchers have looked at so many different kind of populations from student populations through to performing populations and business and sporting populations and so forth and and without exception have has found that those who take a growth mindset they overtake those with a fixed mindset regardless of what you would call sort of baseline proficiency or ability but across the board which is you know the fascinating thing So rather than seeing your performance as the definitive display of your abilities, one could approach each performance as an opportunity for learning. Cellist Zoe Knighton takes this approach. 
For her, a performance is not the conclusion of something, but simply the next step in an ongoing journey. It's a good philosophy to have with oneself that each performance is practice for the next one. I don't know that when I was a student it felt like every performance was so definitive and quite often I would only have one concert to which you were working and it took me a little while to realise that that each concert was practice for the next and I realised that when I started coming around to repertoire for the second and third time was that oh, it's fantastic I'll, I can get it I can understand it more deeply now and feel more comfortable um, with this piece for the next time that it comes around and that takes the pressure off a little bit in terms of even those big performances. In fact, Zoe tells me that her experience with the Flinders Quartet has taught her that there is no such thing as enough preparation. And coming to terms with this has helped her and her quartet colleagues maintain perspective. It doesn't matter how many rehearsals we have, we will always want another week before that first performance. We're okay with that now. So we've gone through, you know, having a gazillion rehearsals for something and still wanting another week. You know, it's and that's one of the things that keeps us coming back to the repertoire and keeps us going as musicians is that the journey is endless. The journey is endless. And an important but challenging part of that journey is reflecting upon and assessing one's own work. As a music director, Luke Hunter has seen a fair amount of disconnect between an individual's evaluation of their own performance and the perspective of someone out the front watching and assessing the bigger picture. If I had a dollar for every time I've been out the front and watched a show and walked back at interval or at the end of the show and knocked on a singer's door and said, that was the best you've ever done that number tonight, and they've looked at me like I'm a crazy person and said, it felt awful. I didn't like it. I didn't know what I was doing. That was definitely not one of my best. That happens a lot. And and in the other way too, I've, you know, gone to give notes and sat down and, you know, had, you know, five or six notes in a, in a song for a particular person on whatever given night. The performers looked at me and said, I thought that was the best that I'd ever done it. Wow. So we're not necessarily able as performers to see when we think we're struggling it doesn't necessarily show and it's not as big a problem as we think it is and vice versa we think sometimes that because we put so much effort into it that we felt like we'd worked really hard therefore it must have been a really good performance but sometimes all that effort was getting in the way and causing more problems, you know, and it was showing and that's not what we want. We don't want it to show. So we're not our own best critiques and we can't ever be. So performers, some, you know, that's another bit of control that they can't, they don't, that they have to give up in a way is that they have to put their faith in the people that are sitting out the front and seeing the big picture of what they're doing and say, yeah, that stuff isn't working as well and we need to work on that. But conversely, 
those five things that you're really worried about, you can let go because you sound great out there. And did you hear the audience cheer for you at the end of the song? They're having a perfectly good time in the theatre. I think we can all relax, you know. If a performer is being overly critical of their work, it may be because they're assuming their audience is doing the same. But as hip-hop artist Rob Tremlett tells me, in his experience, an audience tends to approach a performance with far more kindness than the performer ever shows him or herself. They're standing there waiting to have a good time with you. They're not standing there waiting to hate you. They're certainly not there waiting to to, to see you, yeah, screw it up or, or to question every little detail. You're doing that, though. Like, you do that as a performer and you do that as an artist. You stand there going, oh, man, this has got to be perfect or, man, I fudged that lyric or, um, you know, I ran out of breath on that line. That kind of sounded whack. You know, like, you do that and you go home and you criticise yourself, but... It's so much. It's so much worse, you know, what you do to yourself. That's why. That's why I was all. I think I was always blown away by the positive feedback that I got because I probably wasn't expecting to ever get any, and I certainly didn't give it to myself. You know, I was just. I was just criticizing constantly. The way that you speak with yourself about other people or with other people about other people is probably a fraction of how you speak to yourself about yourself. Greta Bradman says that cultivating the discipline to have compassion for other people will help you have compassion for yourself as a performer. So if you find yourself being really super judgmental about other people, then just take a step back and really think about how am I treating myself and what am I putting on myself and how do I feel and what do I need to do to um, you know, Im- improve that? Because I think that we can be our most creative, our most freely creative when we aren't judgmental. Gabrielle Edwards says it's important that performers are aware of their inner critic, which she says can be far more diabolical than the professional in print or the amateur on social media. This is because of the situation discussed in earlier episodes, which sees performing artists in a particularly vulnerable situation. Being a performance artist is a unique path to take. It makes people incredibly vulnerable. People who are creatives and artistic, who open themselves up to the world more than others, whose filters aren't as thick and strong as non-artists and creatives, um, you really need to have a greater sense of your own inner world and your inner critic what path have you taken to get here? What are your injuries or triggers? Um, where are you at emotionally? And is there anything in there, any themes around judgment and criticism? And if there are, really become aware of them and work with them. No one can do a perfect job 100% of the time. So how can you move on from a less than ideal performance? According to Zoe Knighton, the way in which you process and move forward from a subpar performance can be instrumental in developing your confidence on stage. 
I often tell students a story about a golfer called um, Jack Nicklaus. And Jack Nicklaus is one of the most legendary golfers that history has produced. There's a lovely story about him giving a talk to college students about his career. And if you don't know anything about golf, all you need to know is that three-putting is bad. You don't want a three-putt. And he said in this talk to college students, I have never three-putted in the finals of a majors tournament. And one of the students put up their hand and said, Mr. Nicholas, but I saw you. You three-putted in the final of, a, of, of one of the majors. And he just repeated, I have never three-putted in the finals of a majors tournament. His point being that at the end of one of these important rounds of golf, the way he remembers it is how he wanted it to go. And so what that means is that he's crafting his memories. He's, he's not changing the scoreboard. He's just changing his memories. So what that means is that he has this bank of real positive memories so that when he comes to the finals of a majors tournament, as far as he's concerned, he's never three-putted. And also, I imagine that he knows he's not going to beat himself up about it. That night, he's not going to relive all the shots that he missed. He can live with himself. So promoting memories of successful and satisfying performance experiences can help you to approach the stage with confidence, even though we know it won't be perfect every time we're up there. Embracing kindness, compassion and a little bit of self-deception can help us to consciously let go of times when a performance didn't go our way. What can sometimes happen when we walk on stage is that when we get up to a passage perhaps that we've been worrying about, we remember all the times that we've stuffed it up in rehearsal or in the practice room. And that's something that we, something that we can really learn from in terms of when we walk on stage... For all intents and purposes, what we're replaying is the best possible version of ourselves. That's, that's what is, is going through our heads. Recent research examining creative work environments has found that creative workers tend to hold different workplace ideologies than the general population. Within these ideologies, it's considered the norm to strive for perfection. But in the harsh and competitive environment of the arts and entertainment industries, internalised ideals about perfection have the potential to become destructive. Consider, for example, the consequences for a performing arts worker's ability to recognise and seek help for mental health and wellbeing issues. Music director Luke Hunter sees the need to achieve perfection as a barrier to performers admitting they're suffering from issues like anxiety. Yes, performers want everything to be right all the time and they want the audience to be on their side and they want a rapturous applause at the end of the night and they want to sing perfectly and... So that admitting that you're suffering from some anxiety is admitting that things aren't going perfectly. In some areas of the industry, compromise is necessary in order to simply survive a gruelling performance schedule. 
Musical theatre actor Matt Haywood says there's a delicate balance every main stage performer needs to learn when delivering eight shows a week for an extended period of time. It's a lesson he learned on his first professional job, two years in the original Australian cast of Mamma Mia. When I first, like the first few times that I went on, because, you know, I just want to get it right, uh, I would really, really beat myself up about if I, you know, got a few things wrong for the first time I ever went on for a track, what we call a track, someone's someone's ensemble part. Um, I would really beat myself up about it, but the reality is if you've never been on stage before, you've never been in those positions, in those costumes, in those lights, doing those lifts with people, you can't get it right. You, you can't get it 100% right. Uh, so I, I had to learn that lesson along the way. I had to be okay with that, which I got better at. And another thing that I learned along the way is that if you operate at 100% eight times a week, it isn't achievable. You, uh, you know, it's demanding. Your body gets sore and your voice gets sore. And if you self-reflect on every performance you do, uh, you could drive yourself crazy. So you just have to learn how to pace yourself at a smart 90, but make it look like 100. Yep. There is a phrase of um, sometimes, you know, someone will come off stage and someone will go, oh, they just dialed it in, didn't they? Should have stayed in your dressing room and made a phone call. But I don't know that anyone who's seeing the show for the first time will ever see that. Interestingly enough, I think that it's a skill you have to learn when you're doing eight shows a week. You have to learn to pull it back if you're not going to make it through the week. And it's, it's from just exhaustion. And I see it in a lot of younger performers. It, they just don't know how to go f- anything but 100%. Actor and singer Rachel Dunham recently took a break from performing to become head chaperone on the stage musical adaptation of Matilda, which saw her working closely with a group of child performers for three years. In fact, with kids, kids are a prime example, especially these kids that are in dance mom dance schools. And... You know, as the mothers used to horrifically tell me, if you're not in hospital on a drip, you're on stage dancing. I'm like, you need to stop talking now. <laughs> you know, I've had, I've seen kids that you you tell them every five minutes, you say, you need to, it's just a rehearsal. You can calm it down. So they're doing rehearsals on, over the show. The show will be going on. We'll have another team of kids doing rehearsal. And some of these kids, it's like, it's 42 degrees. We've got the air con cranking and they're, they're drilling you with, with dance numbers, you need to pull it back. And they just have no concept. And a lot of these kids won't learn it until they're in their 20s about how do you dial that back. Um, they didn't know what the term just market meant. Cellist Zoe Knighton tells me that early on in her career, she had to face the idea that she was trying to achieve the impossible with her performance. I remember Bill Hennessy saying to me one time in a performance class at university, and saying, Zoe, you're trying to change the world with every performance that you do. Just get it in tune, get it in time, and every once in a while, you might change the world. And I remember just walking, but I want to change the world! You know? <laughs> and there is, there is something to be said for playing what's on the page and just crafting it as an instrumentalist would 
Something Zoe finds helpful to keep in mind is an approach by sports psychologist and author Don Green, who breaks achievement in performance into three levels, suboptimal, optimal and elite. Most of the time we're all striving to have those elite performances where everything goes the way we wanted it to and we magic is made and we, you know, everybody says that's the best performance that they've ever been to. But actually to focus on just having an optimal performance, which is just, this is, you, you go in and you stick to your plan. You stick to your performance plan and that's that. And then, you know, from there, you build up that wonderful bank of good memories. And also what happens then is that one, your own definition of, of an optimal performance will change and grow over time so that we do continue to um, improve, I guess. One thing about perfection is that it's simple and absolute. We may not be able to describe it, but we'll know it when we see it, which makes it an easy mark to aim for, if not to achieve. But Councillor Gabrielle Edwards has some advice for how to replace this idea of perfection with something far more meaningful and constructive. Come up with your own vision of what perfection actually looks like. Let's replace the term with excellence. So nut it out. What does excellence mean to you? What does it look like? What are you seeing and hearing and feeling when you imagine excellence? That's what you're striving for. And reject the myths of perfection that are all around us. Hollywood started way back in, you know, the sort of Hollywood studio system where they perpetrated the myths of perfection of their stars. You know, that was all. We can look at that now and, and see that it was very obvious, but it's still happening. And unfortunately, through social media, a lot of performing artists are, you know, they're kind of using social media and Instagram to build a profile, which is part of your profession. But a lot of it is focused on looking perfect and being perfect. So it's perpetuating that. It's not showing reality. Gabrielle says the 80-20 rule is a useful one to incorporate into most aspects of your life, where you accept from the outset that 80% of the time you're going to get it right and the other 20% you won't. Aside from the relief that can come with accepting the 20% that you will get wrong, this allows you to focus on how you respond to getting it wrong rather than fixating on the failure. For the creative teams that support performers, being open to the flux of what can happen during a performance is something one has to embrace as part of the job. I asked music director Luke Hunter whether he ever finds it difficult relying on his performers to execute his direction. I think I used to get really frustrated if people weren't doing something that I knew that they should be doing. I think I still probably do a little bit, but if anything, I think the older I've got, the more I think I'm going to give them all the information that I can and be available whenever I can to help them. But ultimately, it's up to them to do what they do. It's not on me whether they, how they perform their show, you know. In an earlier episode, Greta Bradman spoke about how, for her, committing to a career as a performer was about committing to being vulnerable. And for Greta, this vulnerability involves accepting imperfection. Accepting that, you know, stuff can happen, that stuff can go wrong. Uh, 
and that it's more important to be vulnerable and imperfect on that stage and authentic and connect than try and pursue some elusive, completely impossible version of perfect that doesn't exist because, you know, beauty and art is in the eye of the beholder after all and that can completely derail sort of a a really transcendent performance moment. So performing arts workers tend to subscribe to a philosophy of consistent high performance. They bring to their work self-imposed standards that must be maintained. The pursuit of perfection is considered the norm, and any deficit is on show for colleagues, employers and paying audience members all to see. But striving instead for compassion and a vision of success which you yourself have defined will see you achieve so much more than someone shackled to the myth of the perfect. One last thought from Rachel Dunham on judging your own work. One thing I know is that I'm really, really good at what I do. And I I encourage people to get to a place in their life where they can just make that statement without apologising and without putting in 10 disclaimers. It's okay to be really good at what you do, especially if you've worked as freaking hard as I have. Next time on House Lights Up. You're, you're meant to be different. You know, you're not meant to sound like everybody else. It isn't a movie, and I think that's what makes live theatre exciting, is that it's fresh and alive. And if you break all those things down, that's really what performing and singing and music is all about. If it was a concerto, it's just me that I have to live with, whereas playing in a, in a quartet... You know, you have your friends and colleagues that you could potentially let down. You can't be a nasty person backstage for long before people don't really want you around anymore. House Lights Up is a podcast by Ali Imlach, presented by the Arts Wellbeing Collective, an Arts Centre Melbourne initiative dedicated to promoting positive mental health and wellbeing in the performing arts. A very special thanks goes out to the seven incredible people who generously contributed their time, insight and personal experience to this project. Greta Bradman, Rachel Dunham, Gabrielle Edwards, Matt Hayward, Luke Hunter, Zoe Knighton and Rob Tremlett. For more information, head to the Arts Wellbeing Collective website at artswellbeingcollective.com.au.